This morning we had a few issues with, uh, with the sound, with the video, different things like that. So we, weren't, we were able to record it, but the, it didn't look super great. And so we're recording again tonight. We're actually live streaming right now. So know that now y'all don't get the night off. So y'all are on camera. People are going to be seeing and listening to you. So make sure you have your best behavior on. But with that, uh, I do want to welcome the, all the guys watching online, the, the South Campus, the guys out in Granbury, everybody who's joining us online. We're glad that you're here. A lot of you guys I'm pretty familiar with, uh, but some of you are, are new to Band of Brothers this semester and probably saw me the first couple of weeks, and then I was gone for a little while, and now I'm back. Uh, my name is Mitchell. I uh, work here in the men's ministry, obviously, and I tell people my job is I get to do. I have the privilege of doing whatever Ken doesn't want to do. Uh, that is my job, and I love taking part of it. But the real reason I was gone is because, as most of you probably know, my wife and I celebrated the birth of our first child. Uh, we had a son, and thank you. <laughs> um, and what new dad would I be if I didn't come with pictures? And so this is Gregory Jude Doris. He's going to go by his middle name, Jude, just like me. My name is Gregory Mitchell Doris. Uh, and guys, he is a chunk. He was born at nine pounds, two ounces. At his one-month appointment, he was 13 pounds. Uh, to kind of put that into perspective, my younger brother was 13 pounds at his four-month appointment. I've got a one-month-old who is 13 pounds now. So he is huge. It's, it's awesome. Uh, and to answer the question that everybody's been asking me, no, I'm not sleeping. So how I'm up here able to function. Well, I'm here, but I might not necessarily really be here uh, because I'm tired. But uh, as cliche as it sounds, being a dad is awesome. I've loved, I've only been doing it for six weeks at this point, and I've loved every second of it. Um, but yeah, so he's, he's, he's amazing, and he's, he cries really, really loudly, and he wants to make sure every single person in the house can hear them, hear him, no matter where you are. Uh, but yeah, so my, and y'all, my wife is a champ. She labored for 20 hours, ended up having to do a C-section, and uh, is even now, six weeks later, just on top of the world. Like she's loving it, and she's, she's doing such an amazing job. They're actually watching right now, so uh, they're, they're loving the shout-out here as well. But, so that's, that's my son. We're, we're really excited, and yes, I'm very tired. But tonight, we're going to be in Genesis chapters 20 and 21, and it's going to seem like we're probably going kind of fast because we've just got a ton of ground to cover, and I don't have all the time in the world to talk about it. We're really going to be interacting with a, a few different stories and a few different characters that we already know. We'll be talking about Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael, Hagar. Uh, we'll meet a, a king named Abimelech. But the main theme throughout all of these stories that we talk about tonight is that God is with us. Now, as we, we know, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, as, and he's giving it to the Israelites as they're about to walk into the promised land. And so as we read all of these stories in Genesis, as we're reading through this book, we have to remember that context and think to ourselves, okay, what would these people be thinking as they were reading this uh, about to go into the promised land? And today, we see that it is God is with us. And then the same is true thousands and thousands of years later is the same was true for the Israelites then, was the same was true for Abraham and, and his wife then, is true for us now, is that God is with us. 
Now, the most common story that, or the most well-known story in the passages that we have tonight are, or is the birth of Isaac. We're going to see the importance of this, obviously, because it fulfills the promise that Abraham was given by God in a few chapters ago. But also, we're going to see that it is through uh, Abraham's line, through Isaac, that eventually we get to Jesus Christ. And so when God says that he's going to bless all the families of the world through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, it's because at the end of this is Jesus. And so that's the the hope of the world, the hope of the nation. So I'm going to pray for us, but as I'm praying, y'all can turn to Genesis chapter 20 and 21. Father, thank you for tonight um, and for bringing us here this evening. God, I just thank you for all the men in this room who are uh, willingly giving up a night during the week just to come together and study your word. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for what it is you have to say, Lord, and, and uh, continually reminding us that you're with us, that uh, you protect us, that you're for us. Um, and God, that, that's something that we never forget. And in the moments where it becomes hard to trust in you, uh, whether we like it or not, that we would be constantly reminded um, that you are with us and that you're for us. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight the words that I speak would not be mine, uh, but they would be yours and yours alone and anything that comes solely from me would just be so quickly forgotten, um, and that your word would ring true in our minds and our hearts. It's your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so where we pick up, well, let's, let's go back. Last week, where we left off was this really strange story with, with Lot. He, we see uh, he lives in Sodom with his, his wife and his daughters, and at the end of last week, Lot And his family are leaving Sodom. His wife turns around, sees Sodom being completely destroyed. She turns to a pillar of salt. And so Lot is left with his two daughters as they've left Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Kind of a side note, it probably wasn't until my freshman year of high school that I realized that it was two cities. It was Sodom and Gomorrah. I legitimately thought it was just one long name. It was Sodom and Gomorrah. And it wasn't until my youth pastor heard me say that, and he was, and I was like on our student leadership team, and he was like, that's very dumb. It's two cities, not, not one. But here we are, I obviously made, or got corrected, and I work at a church now. So must be doing something right. Uh, but we end last week with Lot and his daughters living in these caves in this, uh, outside of this town called Zoar. He's, he's afraid to really live around other people Lot's daughters have been so impacted by the lives that they lived in Sodom, what they saw going on around them, that they were terrified of not having offspring. And so they resulted in going to basically get their father drunk and have sex with him so that they could produce offspring. It's this very strange story that we see uh, these decisions made of uh, really an unrighteous life. And what happens from these, these two children is they become... The, basically the leaders and the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites, two tribes that are pretty much uh, a thorn in the side of Israel from this point forward. So from here, we really don't see Lot again. And we, we don't see him in Genesis. We don't interact with any more of him uh, with, in any of the stories. But he shows up again in Second Peter. If you remember last week, Ken quotes Peter saying, referring to Lot as righteous. And that can be kind of confusing because we read through Genesis and we see Lot didn't really make any smart decisions. What's going on here? And I think it's a reminder for us that righteous people 
can make unrighteous decisions. And we see that with Lot quite a bit. And we're going to see that actually with Abraham today. I think a lot of times we tend to think of the, the large characters in Scripture, Abraham, David, as these people that really can't make mistakes. But what we'll see today is while there are moments in Abraham's life where he does make righteous decisions, we'll see today that there are a few instances where he actually, as a righteous man, makes an unrighteous decision. So we'll see in the beginning of chapter 20 that Abraham is now, uh, he's left Hebron and he's journeying to the territory of the Negev. Specifically, he lands in a place called Gerar. So while Abraham is journeying, while he's going uh, to try to, well, really why he's sojourning in this land, you've got to imagine he's thinking about the previous, what we've read in the previous chapters, that God has promised him a son. God has promised him Blessing God has promised him descendants. And at this point, nothing's happened. Really, all he has is Ishmael. Yet God has told him, Ishmael is not the child of the promise. So he's, he's wondering, okay, is God really going to fulfill these promises? How will he fulfill these promises? Can he fulfill these promises? And we've seen Abraham kind of interact with the promises of God before like this. And what I mean by that is, he really begins to take matters into his own hands, and it only goes off the rails from there. The, the thing that I think back to is when he left Canaan to go to Egypt. The first mistake he makes is he tells uh, Sarah that when we get to Egypt, you are to tell everybody that you are my sister and not my wife. This is obviously a mistake on very many levels, but we see him make the same mistake Tonight. In, in Genesis chapter 20, as he's leaving Hebron, he ends up in Gerar. He meets this king of the, the territory named Abimelech, and he says the same thing, that Sarah is not my wife, she is my sister. And we'll see that he's doing this to protect his own self. So Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, it says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his, uh, Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Like I said, we've been here before in Genesis chapter 12. It says when they are about to enter into Egypt, uh, Sari, his wife, this is before her name was changed to Sarah. He says to her, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. What this shows us is that there is at least some fraction of Abraham that doesn't believe that God is going to fulfill his promises, doesn't believe that God is going to protect him. He's, in a way, mistrusting the Lord in this situation. And what ends up happening is as he takes matters into his own hands and he and he thinks, I've got to take this situation over by myself because clearly God's not going to control this here. Is All he's out to do is save his own self. All he's out to do is save his own skin because he tells Sarah to say this so that it'll be well with me. He, he doesn't do it for her protection. He's pretty much left her out to dry. And he does this to save himself so that it, he will be okay and that he will not, uh, will not be killed like he says here. In this moment, he's forgetting that we serve the God of the universe. We worship the God of the universe that will protect us. And we've seen him protect Abraham over and over again in situations uh, throughout Genesis. But in this moment, Abraham has tried to basically figure out 
the, the plan of God, or he thinks that God can't accomplish his plan, so he's taking it on his own, and he's really, through fear, making these decisions. So we see Abimelech, this king of Gerar, sees Sarah and immediately says, okay, I, I, I want her in my harem. And so he, he takes Sarah. And in verse 3, it says, this is when God steps in. It says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. I, lo- I love verse 3 here because it starts with but God. Any time in Scripture you see the phrase, but God, it's normally follow, or it's normally coming after something that humanity has done that is just completely dumb, completely stupid. We've taken matters into our own hands. Things are falling off the rails, but God, and, and thanks be to God, he steps in and saves the day because here he steps in and he saves Sarah. And what's interesting is we'll see here in a little bit that when he does this, he actually takes a moment that, as we're reading this, if we don't know how it ends, we tend to think, what is about to happen? Everything's about to go wrong. You know, we're, we're kind of in a situation where it was like uh, Hagar and Ishmael again. What, what are we going to do here? God actually turns it into a blessing, and we'll see that Abimelech just gives him everything in, in terms of trying to gain forgiveness and, and earn, uh, make everything right. But the main point from just this part of this story at the beginning of chapter 20 is there is nothing that can stop God from accomplishing his will. Nothing can stop God, uh, his sovereign plan, from happening. And I say that because what story immediately follows this is the birth of Isaac. So as I'm sitting here this week preparing for this, I'm thinking to myself, okay, in the context of this, Moses is writing to these Israelites about to step into the promised land, what point does this story have for them? Well, one, it shows that God is with us. But two, God is removing any doubt from the Israelites that Isaac, who is about to be born, is Abraham's son. Because in this situation, we see there, there's very much so a possibility that it could be Abimelech. But then we see God step in, and he says, it is because of me that I have not allowed Abimelech to touch her. In verse 4, It says, now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself, speaking of Abraham, say to me that she is my sister? And Sarah herself said, he is my brother. It's in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands that I have done this. In a roundabout way, in Abimelech's defense, he really hadn't done anything wrong, or at least in his mind, he hadn't done anything wrong because he was operating under the assumption that Sarah was this man's sister. Now, forgetting for a second that he's a pagan and he's not going to operate under the rules of, you know, uh, you know, only sleeping with your wife and, and the, the man of one wife, that's not how he's going to see. But in his mind, he's like, this is this guy's sister, it's not his wife. So he had really not, in his mind, done anything wrong. But in this moment, he is encountering God, and you can see that he kind of becomes terrified because think about it this way. Abimelech had no idea who God was, had no idea who Yahweh was. He might have heard of him. We don't know. But then this divine power visits him in a dream and says, you are a dead man. I mean, we know who God is. Can you imagine being visited by God in a dream and the God of the universe, the God of everything saying to you, you are a dead man? That's I mean, saying that's terrifying is just such an understatement 
of what that feels like. So Abimelech is terrified. He knows, obviously, something has gone wrong here. But at the very least, he realizes that he's dealing with a divine power. And again, this is God accomplishing his plan and his will, but we see he's doing this through his omnipotence and his omniscience. Because he says in verse 6, Yes, and this is God speaking, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, but it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So we see that it was God that steps in to save Sarah. It was God that was with Sarah. And so as Abraham is basically reunited with Sarah, we get this, this uh, reappearing theme that God is with them, that God is protecting them, God is for them, even if they don't believe it, even if they don't see it. And the thing is, is the same thing is true for you and me. I think there are, there's time and time again, and I'm just speaking from my own life, where it's a lot easier to talk the talk than it is to walk the walk, right? I, I can say time and time again that I trust in the Lord and his plan for my life and that I know he's for me and, and that he's going to protect me. But the saying is, action speaks louder than words. How do our actions reflect that? Because in this moment, Abraham's actions do not. He's, he's talked about he, he's following after the Lord. He, he trusts in God. But in this moment, he his actions are speaking something completely different. In fact, he is trying to, in his own way, figure things out. And I think this, this verse from Proverbs 19 speaks to this perfectly. It says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. No amount of human effort can thwart God's plan. Whether we're doing it intentionally or not, there is nothing that we can do to stop God from accomplishing his will and his plan for our lives. And we're seeing that here. We, we see the moment where Sarah is with Abimelech and we're thinking everything's gone wrong. Nothing is going right. Yet God steps in, changes the situation. He, he's with Sarah, he's with Abraham, and he makes the situation uh, back according to his, his will. But in this, we see the mistrust of Abraham. We see his, the, 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 the creeping doubt uh, in Abraham's life because he knew, him and Sarah both knew that God had promised them a son. But his actions throughout these two chapters, as we'll see today, reveal that he, he doesn't fully believe that. I'm not going to say he doesn't believe it at all, but we'll see that his actions kind of prove that he has some doubts. But this, even this, wouldn't, God would not let that get in his way. So eventually what happens is uh, Abimelech approaches Abraham and says, what have you done? Why have you done this to me? Why have you brought this upon me? You know Sarah's your wife, yet you have lied to me and told me that she, she is your sister. Why? What have I ever done to you? And Abraham's response in verse 11 is, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is my, uh, indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. In verse 13, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Instead of apologizing, instead of owning up to his mistakes because he's been caught in the mistake, Abraham attempts really this half 
half-hearted uh, justification. He says, I'm doing this because I was scared, essentially. I, I didn't think that there was any fear of God in this place. And to a degree, he's right. Abimelech's a pagan, and nobody in his kingdom believed or worshipped God. And so, But he thinks, because of this, I must now take matters into my own hand because God's not going to protect us. So Sarah, you are my sister, not my wife. But then what's fascinating is we see in verse 17 that he says, I've been doing this since the beginning. He says, since we've, I've been called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, I've told Sarah, whenever we encounter anyone, you are to say that she, you are my sister and not my wife. Now, we have two instances in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 of Abraham putting this on display. But we have to imagine in this journey of Abraham that is over 800 miles that it's probably happened more than these two times. But he's been doing this time and time again. And what does this do? This is an action of his that shows us that he has some kind of doubt, some kind of mistrust in whether God's going to fulfill his promises and what he says. And yet again, as we see throughout the whole story of Genesis, that God is not going to allow this to stop him from accomplishing his will. And like I said earlier, in fact, God takes this story and it kind of becomes a blessing for Abraham because in an attempt to make everything right, in an attempt to make sure that he has been freed of any guilt, Abimelech gives him everything. I mean, he gives him sheep, oxen, servants, land. He gives him a ton of money and then also gives him Sarah back. And he says, take all of this. I, like, I want to make sure that I am no longer in the wrong and everything is going to be okay. And so in this situation where we think everything's gone wrong, God flips the situation around, and it kind of becomes a blessing. But then here's the ironic part, and this is probably my favorite part of the story. In verse 17, it says, And then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So evidently, God, because of Abimelech's actions with Sarah, he had made it to where Abimelech's wife and all of Abimelech's slaves, basically this town of women, was barren. They could not have children. They weren't uh, able to to produce children. And Abimelech turns to Abraham and says, will you pray to your God, the God that visited me in my dream, pray to him that these women would be fertile again. And the ironic thing is, Abraham is praying to God to make an entire town of women have the ability to have children, yet he continues to mistrust and not believe that God can do that with Sarah. If God could do this for an entire city of women, why could he not do the the, the same thing for Sarah? And here is where I, I love the way that Moses has written this, and I don't think this is a coincidence, because we end chapter 20 with Abraham praying to God to to make all of these women uh, fertile again. And then Moses immediately jumps into God doing what he said he would do and uh, Sarah becoming pregnant and giving birth to Isaac. It says in verse 21, The Lord visited Sarah as he said he would, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at that time of which God had spoken to him. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. 
these verses prove to us that God delivers on his promises. God is batting a thousand when it comes to the promises that he's made from the beginning of Genesis all the way to now. God has delivered on all of his promises, and he's doing the same thing here for Abraham. Everything that he has promised to him has now, or is now coming true. He's done what he said he would do. Sarah conceived, and she gave birth to Isaac. And I say this is ironic because Abraham continued to not believe that this was possible. And I know that because remember the reaction of Abraham and Sarah when God said this is what would happen. All the way back in Genesis 17, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Can you imagine us or you being visited by God, God telling you he was going to do something in your life, impossible or not in your mind, and your response is to fall on the floor and laugh. I think we, we pretty quickly forget how disrespectful this is of Abraham towards the Lord. God's saying, I promise you that this will happen. I promise you that I'm going to do this. And his response is laughing on the floor. He, he, he falls on his face and he laughs. And this is essentially saying to the Lord, there's no chance. There's no way that you're going to do this. Yet we see here in Genesis 21 that Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. You see, in this moment, God is achieving the impossible. I think we, we see throughout Scripture God accomplishing the impossible, right? God has performed miracle after miracle, Parting the Red Sea, God, God raised Jesus from the dead, and here a 100-year-old woman and a 90-year-old man had a child. I mean, that, that's crazy. I put, let's put this into perspective for you guys. I just turned 27 last week. My great-grandmother, she passed away a couple of years ago. If she were alive today, she would be just over 100. So what is happening in this story is somebody the age of my great-grandmother giving birth to a son. That's nuts. <laughs> like, like, that's crazy to imagine. I mean, I think about the hard parts that my wife and I just went through. I can't imagine a, my great-grandmother and, like, how frail and the age. Like, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because we serve and worship a God who can achieve the impossible. God is faithful to his promises. And if you remember last week, throughout the stories that we read, we end with God saying, is there anything too hard for the Lord to accomplish? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Jeremiah 32, it says, It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Just to kind of put a, a personal story on this, knowing that we serve a God who, I mean, guys, think about this. We serve a God who created everything from nothing. So why do we ever think there is something that God can't handle? Why do we ever think there is a situation that the Lord is going to be outsmarted by, outwitted by? There is nothing too hard for the Lord. My, my sister, this kind of goes with what we see here in, in Genesis 20 and 21. My sister, I have an older sister who, uh, kind of like what Ken was saying last week, for, for the longest time wanted to have kids of her own. I can remember uh, being at home one day and uh, listening to my mom get a phone call from my sister, and she was bawling her eyes out because the doctors had told her that her and her husband had a less than 2% chance of ever having kids on her own or on their own. 
a month later, my sister became pregnant and gave, and you know, a month later after that, gave birth to their, their daughter. To this day, my sister has, has given birth to two kids. An impossible situation, statistically, an impossible situation uh, from a, a human standpoint. God achieves, achieves the impossible. We serve a God who can uh, achieve the impossible. The impossible does not stop him. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So in this situation, I truly believe that Abraham and Sarah wanted to believe that God could do this, but in their minds, Sarah being as old as she was and Sarah being barren was something that they thought God couldn't get past, or at least in their minds, they couldn't get past it. Yet, at the right time, according to his will and according to his plan, God shows them that he'll do what he says he's going to do, and he's going to fulfill his promises, and that we can trust what he says. We can trust what his word says uh, to this day. Because Isaac is born and he becomes the child of the promise that Isaac or that uh, God has given Abraham and Sarah. But then remember what God says about Abraham and what God says about Isaac and their, their family and their line. In Genesis 12, it says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then this is the important part. And, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham and Sarah, they, they found great joy in Isaac, but it doesn't compare at all to what would come through the line of Isaac. Because if you trace the line of Isaac all the way down, you eventually get to Jesus Christ himself, who is the hope of the world. When God says, through your family, all the families of the world will be blessed, what he's saying is, through Jesus Christ, who is going to come through your family line, the entire world will be blessed. And we see prophecies about this as well in Isaiah chapter 9. It's a, this is a passage that if you're here, if you're in a church during Christmas, you're going to hear this a thousand times, so I'm just preparing your hearts now. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And then Acts chapter 3, calling all the way back to Genesis here, it says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Through the promise of Isaac, God, God fulfills that. But what Abraham doesn't know and doesn't see is that later on down the line, through the, the family tree of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we are going to eventually get to Jesus Christ himself. And it is through that that God fulfills his promise of turning everyone from their wickedness, and us having the ability to have a relationship with the Lord and our lives being changed forever. This is the great hope and the great promise that we see the Lord fulfilling, even though at the moment Abraham doesn't realize that this is what's going to happen later on. So in this story, at just the right time, God is doing what he said he would do, and he's showing Abraham, you can trust me. He's showing us as we're reading this, you can trust God. And he's showing the Israelites as they are about to go into the promised land that you can trust him no matter what. 
And this is just, yet again, another example of God being with Abraham and Sarah. God is with us. So then what ends up happening is, as Moses is writing this, he jumps to Ishmael. In verses 7 and 8, we're going to see kind of a a time period jump as well. So Isaac is born in in verses uh, 1 through 7. And between verse 7 and verse 8, there's a gap of three years. So we're going to pick up three years later into chapter 8. And it says, in the child, speaking of Isaac, the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So we're we're picking up with Ishmael again. And we know that uh, Moses has jumped ahead three years here because the, the weaning process and the celebration of that would typically come three at once the child turned three years old. So we know that from verse 7 to verse 8, we're going ahead three years. And so in this, Abraham's throwing this feast to celebrate uh, his son Isaac. And Sarah, who has we've seen in the past, has dealt harshly with Hagar and has dealt har- harshly with Ishmael, sees Ishmael and immediately just swells with anger and tells Abraham, you got to kick them out. I don't want them anywhere around this camp anymore. In this moment, it says that Ishmael was laughing. Uh, Sarah sees him laughing. And as I read that, I I thought back to when Sarah and Hagar had their encounter a few chapters ago where the the term laughing in the Hebrew for uh, Hagar could kind of mean a a mocking laugh. And so this would obviously infuriate uh, uh, Sarah. And I, I, I look at that here. So Ishmael, it says he... It was, he was laughing, and Sarah is angry. This, this Hebrew word really can, can mean a lot for, for a laugh. It can mean a genuine laugh. It can mean mocking. I tend to think here that Ishmael, as a, uh, as a boy, was just kind of enjoying himself. But let's get into the mind of Sarah for a second. Every single day, she wakes up, and she sees Ishmael, and she's reminded of the mistake that she made years ago. And obviously we know that this, this doesn't sit well with her because of how she's treated Hagar and Ishmael. But in this moment, in a celebration of her son Isaac, she sees Ishmael having a good time, enjoying himself, and she's reminded of this mistake and this, this threat to the heir, the, this child of, uh, that has been promised to them through Isaac. And so she tells Abraham, get him out of here. Kick them out. I don't want them around this camp at all but we see Abraham being somewhat reluctant to do this. And we have to ask ourselves, why? If you go back to Genesis 17, where we see God promise what he's going to do with Isaac, and also he makes promises for Ishmael. In chapter 17, it says, speaking for for Isaac, uh, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, and behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. So when Sarah tells Abraham, kick them out, I don't want them to be here any longer, 
Abraham's thinking, okay, God has promised to make Ishmael into a great nation. God has, has said he's blessed him. If I kick them out into the wilderness, they're not going to survive. So how is God going to be able to do this? And yet again, we're seeing this, uh, this, this doubt creep into Abraham's mind of, okay, this is a situation that is impossible for God to figure out because if they're in the wilderness, they're surely going to die. But yet again, we're going to see God step in and tell Abraham, show Abraham that he can trust him. Verse 12, God says to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman, speaking of Ishmael, because he is your offspring. God's confirming yet again in a few short years to Abraham that he is in control. There's nothing outside of God's control. His plan is perfect and he will accomplish his will no matter what. And part of that is Sarah responding the way she is. You and I all know that there are moments in our lives, there are things that happen that are happening because, you know, according to God's will, but we don't understand why. And I think this is a situation where Sarah responding the way she did is a part of God's plan because what happens is Isaac, there needed to be separation between Isaac and Ishmael for God to fulfill his promises and his plan through Isaac. So what ends up happening is uh, Abraham pretty much kind of reluctantly gives Hagar and Ishmael bread and water and sends them off into the wilderness. And they're, they're wandering and uh, there's a few commentators that believe the amount of water that he gives them is so little that they would stay close to the camp so that Abraham could uh, continue to care for them. Uh, and, and if this were true, that's yet again Abraham trying to take matters into his own hands. Uh, but we see that they're, they're wandering in the wilderness. And in verse 15, it says, When the water in the skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Now, I read this passage, and you've got to remember that I'm a sleep-deprived, emotional uh, new father. And the first time I read this, I, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I cried. I was like, I was imagining myself in this situation, and I just could not handle it. And then Ken walked into my office and was like, what are you doing? And then pointed out to me, we so often tend to think of Ishmael as a, a, a baby, a child in these verses, but most likely he was a a late teenager. He was probably 16 or 17 years old. Ishmael was 13 when Isaac was born. If we believe the, the three-year period between verses 7 and 8, that makes him, in simple math, 16. And so he's not just this defenseless, uh, has no idea what's going on little, little boy. No, he's, at least in, in this day and age, he would have been considered an adult. He would have been considered a man. He is in, uh, at least for us, late teenagers. In this, so understanding that, we do see the love that Hagar has for her son in this desperate situation, but we're going to see, again, God step in, save the situation, God protecting Ishmael and Hagar and God being with them. In verse 17, it says, 
And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And we see from this point on, God points out to them that there's water over in this area and he uh, revives them, refreshes them, and, and, and really sets them up from there. Here's what's interesting. Twice in this, in just these couple of verses, we see Moses write, God heard the voice of Ishmael. It doesn't say that God heard the cries and, and the, the worry of Ishmael. It says God heard the voice of Ishmael. And this kind of caught me by surprise, and I started thinking about it. Ishmael, his entire life, would have grown up Understanding who Yahweh was, understanding who God was, because Abraham was worshiping God, Abraham was making sacrifices to God. It wasn't like God was this mythical unknown creature to to Ishmael. He would have grown up worshiping God. And so I think in this moment he could have been praying. Because he's it doesn't say he's crying, it doesn't say that he's scared, it doesn't say he's worried, it says God hears his voice. God hears his voice, he says it twice. And at this point, God seems more concerned about why Hagar is so upset and so distraught and says, no, I've heard the voice of the boy. Everything is going to be okay. And from that point forward, God doubles down on his promise to make Ishmael into a great nation. And kind of a a point there, I think, at least for me, you guys might not be in this boat, but I sometimes kind of get confused on the definition of a great nation. But what he's saying here is, he will make him a nation of, of many people. It's not, I, I think I get confused with being like, okay, you got Israel, like the great nation, and then, so what's God saying here? But in this instance, he's saying uh, a great nation as in a, a number of people. And so through the rest of this, uh, this part of the, the chapter, we see really kind of a summary of Ishmael's life. In verse 20, it says, and God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the, with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Ishmael, from this point, is going to go on to marry a woman from Egypt. We'll see this a little bit later in Genesis 25. We'll get the more specifics of it. But he goes on to have 12 sons. Now, I think this is a, really through Genesis, we see a lot of comparing and contrasting of two characters. You see it with Abraham and Lot, and I think you also see it kind of with, with Isaac and Ishmael. And it makes you think, okay, throughout Abraham's life, we see the results of unrighteous decisions, and we see the results of righteous decisions. An unrighteous decision, uh, having sex with Hagar, producing Ishmael, and we see from that point forward the results of what happens. Ishmael becomes the father of these 12 Arab nations that become just the thorn in the side for the Israelites moving forward. It's a, he made this decision by not trusting in the Lord and trusting in God's plan. But when he does, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And we see Isaac later becomes the father of Jacob. And Jacob is the father of the 12, tri- the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see really two sons that have 12 sons. And from there, the, the complete opposite of each other. So these, these nations become the, the constant problem for the Israelites, but it confirms what God says, 
in Genesis 16. Speaking of Ishmael, it says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The offspring of Ishmael become the thorn in the side of the Israelites, and that's exactly what we see God say is going to happen in Genesis chapter 16. So whether this is a result that's desired or not, God does what he says he's going to do. We see in this story God protecting Ishmael and Hagar, but we also see that he is with them in a very, very trying time. But we also are reminded of the need for us to trust in the Lord and his plan. We go from Ishmael and Hagar, and Moses jumps back to Abimelech. We kind of sandwich these two chapters, starting with Abimelech and ending with him. And he goes back to Abimelech because Abimelech is still not over everything that's happened with him and Sarah. In verse 22, it says, At the time Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here, right now, by God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said to him, I will swear. Abimelech, a pagan, a pagan king, could tell there was something different about Abraham. He could tell that his numbers had grown. He was becoming a great nation. He could tell that he was blessed by God. I mean, it says, Abimelech tells Abraham, God is with you. Remember, he's a pagan. He doesn't know who God is. He doesn't worship God. The first encounter that he had with God was in this dream where God said, you're a dead man if you do this. Yet, even still, Abimelech could tell that Abraham was blessed by God. And in all of this, through the, the Abraham growing to the size that he was, Abraham having a son, we see God fulfilling his promises. Genesis chapter 12, we see God tell him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So this pagan king seems to get it more than Abraham, that, that God is with him, that God has blessed him. This pagan recognized something about Abraham and his relationship with the Lord that Abraham did not. God was with Abraham, and Abraham and his whole family were blessed. And as I read through the, the end of this chapter, I was pretty convicted, because I, I was hit with the thought of, is that true for us? Is that true for me? If I were to walk out of this building today and I met with my non-Christian friends, would they say of me, you're blessed by God? There's something different about you. This is what we see with, with Abraham. And I ask myself, can the same be said of us? And this, this leads perfectly into the questions uh, for tonight. The first one says, Abimelech noticed that Abraham was blessed. Based on how we live our lives, would our non-Christian friends say the same thing about us? Second, it's often repeated in these chapters that God is with fill-in-the-blank, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael. Do we truly believe this of ourselves? Like I said earlier, our actions speak louder than words. Do we truly believe that God is with us, or is this something that we just say? 
And lastly, like Abraham, we can take matters into our own hands. What area of your life do you need to trust God more in? And do we actually trust God or do we just say that we do? There's a lot of, in these chapters, God basically making the point of, man, it's really easy to talk the talk. It's a lot harder to walk the walk. What are we going to do? Y'all pray with me. Father, thank you for tonight um, and just for giving us your word. Lord, you're, you're, I'm constantly reminded as we're going through Genesis, this, this book that was written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, that your word is convicting, your word is active, and it is alive even today. And it is um, something that drives us from then to now to, to draw closer to you. Um, Lord, I, I pray that your word w- would stick with us tonight and the discussion time, and Lord, that you would be uh, with us as we discuss these questions. Father, thank you for, for just sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, Lord, and I pray that as we leave this room, we know we've been changed by your grace, Father, and I pray that we would share that with others, and Lord, that those around us, those, those people in our lives who don't believe in you would see and notice that there's something different about us, and God, that would spur them to start a relationship with you. Pray all this in your name. Amen.